In last week's episode, we introduced the deep and mysterious world of water on Mars in all its states and likely locations. What we didn't talk about, however, was what to do with this once you get it. On Earth, water plays a crucial role in a great many industries, not just the obvious things like agriculture, but also manufacturing as a lubricant for mining. And of course, on Mars, a major raw ingredient for rocket fuel. This episode will look at what we still need water for on Mars, but also how to creatively use what's available to occasionally sidestep the use of water entirely. That's part two on water with this The Nexus Aurora podcast. So here's the thing that I have a, a problem getting my head around, which, which kind of comes up anytime we talk about Mars-related industry, is that it seems to me, as a, as a complete layman, that you need to send so much stuff to Mars in order to set up the industry that you need to generate the fuel that it seems to me that it would be easier to just send fuel because you, you need so many solar panels to power the equipment that you need to do these, uh, to, to move around these moisture collectors, or you have to create all of that on site, in which case you need loads of manufacturing equipment. And I'm just not quite sure how that how those numbers kind of work out in favor of doing that, rather than just sending like a starship that you put into orbit and then you refuel it in orbit and then you send it to Mars and then you land that and it's just a fuel ship to power another return vehicle. Well, you're not alone in this. Uh, it keeps me up at night sometimes. <laughs> no one's exactly sure how to do it. Yeah, because I mean, there what I'm talking about is like powering a return ship. Whereas obviously, if we're talking about setting up a colony, you can't just be constantly shipping in more and more and more fuel all the time. So you do need to be able to do it. But I'm just talking about in those early days, like setting up that equipment to get fuel rather than sending fuel. I find it difficult to like square all of those numbers in my head. Yes. So basically, the, what, you, what you've quite elegantly uh, talked about there is that there's a cutoff point. Let's put it like this. There's a, there's a cutoff point where it makes more sense to bring fuel along. So say you have a rover and you scooped up 500 grams of soil and you want to get that back to Earth. Should you then have the infrastructure required to make fuel on site to send a tiny little bottle rocket back? Well, not a bottle rocket. You can't escape Martian gravity with a bottle rocket, right? Got to be some serious stuff. Uh, but does it make sense to make your own fuel for that? Probably not, no. And then at the other end of the scale, if you've got a million people on Mars and you know, you're, you're trying to become the greatest economic power in the history of humanity, uh, does that make sense then to be <laughs> importing methane from Earth or you know, importing oxygen or something? Absolutely not. And uh, no way. By that point, uh, energy is no problem. I, there are ways of getting loads of it, by the way. Uh, it's just they're not accessible when you start. It's like like uh, the continental United States, which is inhospitable in many senses starting out. And you're just like, well, where, where do we get our energy? How will we survive in the winter if, you, if there's only, say, you know, like um, a, a, little, a little village with like 100 people in? That, this is a big problem. But then once you have the infrastructure set up, uh, you know, and I think in, was it, so around 1940, Half the entire planet's economic output came from the United States and almost all the oil. And you're like, I mean, that's quite a jump, right? So I think the Mars is going to be the same way in many senses. So you know, there's the sort of thing that uh, 
Robert Zubrin and others uh, from the United States would, would come up with as, a, as an analogy, but I think it fits here. It may not even take that long. So long term, you put solar cells in orbit and you beam the power straight down. So solar power beaming on Earth doesn't really make that much sense. On Well, I mean, the case for that is complicated. So maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But uh, the thing that bothers me is you fry the birds, right? I don't fry the birds. The birds are friends. Please don't kill the friends. Okay? <laughs> it's not nice to like, fry their brains or something with a, an enormous like, microwave array. It has to be like, many kilometers wide and you've got this giant beam coming from space. And you're just like, oh, well, humans won't go through it. It's like, I know, but like, please don't kill the sparrows. Okay? <laughs> There's no, that, that's the major problem with the uh, microwave beaming on, on Earth. Lasers obviously don't make sense because the efficiency isn't, isn't there. And microwaves can be high efficiency, but th so power sats, the, you know, the, 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 the power satellite thing on Earth, that's controversial. I'm not sure it's a good idea. On Mars, it's brilliant. It's amazing, right? You just have an enormous solar array in Martian orbit, always facing the sun. You get 500 watts per square meter of sunlight. Oh, actually, you can just you can amp it up to whatever you want with a good solar concentrator. I got a couple of ideas about how to do that well. And then, you know, you end up having like you have to stop at about a kilowatt because then normal solar cells lose their efficiency as they get too hot. So it's not worth it unless you're doing something crazy like using silicon carbide or something like this, which works better at high temperatures. And you can just dump in enormous amounts of sunlight onto a small solar cell area. If you're using any kind of terrestrial technology, probably you cap out at about a kilowatt anyway. So you just double the intensity of sunlight at Mars and you're good. Like you don't even, you, don't, you wouldn't even want to amplify it that much more. So Martian sunlight is a bit weak if you're not using amplification of any kind or like solar concentrators, right? Where you focus it in with like some giant cheap sort of mirror that amounts to a crisp packet or like potato chip packet, you know, the reflective layer on the inside. Like, uh, a giant mirror made of that weighs hardly anything and focuses an enormous amount of sunlight really easily, right? Hopefully this is, this is easy to picture. In orbit then, you can make enormous amounts of electricity with no problem. And you just you beam it down with a giant microwave emitter and you have a, uh, a system that absorbs it on the Martian surface. There's hardly any atmosphere. And the dust, you, you can tune it so that the dust isn't that big of a deal. And you just absorb... Your, your electricity, beam it down, absorb it, there you go, you're done. That, now, do you do that early on or not? That's a good question. Uh, but certainly later on, it'll all be fine. This, so uh, the, with, the, with the dichotomy then, the, uh, the, where's the transition point? We know for very early stuff, uh, it doesn't make sense to make fuel on site, certainly. For a little rover or something, no way, just bring it along. Actually, don't even bring along fuel. Probably you want to bring along a solid rocket. If it's a rover, the rover just has a solid rocket, sits next to it. Rover picks something up, puts it in a little, you know, like a little scoop of sand or something, you know, like maybe a scoop of sand from like a, a, an extinct mud volcano, like in Astalia Planitia. And you're like, there might, there might be microbes in this, like actual microbes from another planet that evolved separately to anything on Earth. So this is probably the most important scientific discovery of all time. Little, little scoop of thing with, with like a, you know, less than what would fit on a, a, a child's sort of, um, uh, sort of plastic spade for the beach to make a sandcastle or something like that. And you're like, this is, this is the holy grail of all science <laughs> and the epitome of what we, the, the greatest thing probably we expect to discover in, in, in our era. And you take your little sandcastle scoop and you, you, you put it in the top bit 
of a rocket and it flies off and brings it back to Earth. It's the, you know, there you don't make any fuel, obviously. And at the, the larger scales, you make all your electricity in space, you beam it down, and it's all fine. Or you have a nuclear reactor on site. Uh, th those two are in reasonable competition with each other. Basically, with nuclear reactors, the, uh, the turbines, you know, you, it's not just about heating up a fluid that then uh, you make electricity with. You've got a whole turbine structure and so on that can get very complicated. Like, I've seen some of them with some, on the order of like 100,000 parts, right? Many of which are moving, some of which are under extreme temperatures and, uh, and physical stresses. Like they have, you know, the turbines themselves need a brilliant creep resistance. And, you know, they're operating basically all the time on, you know, like with, with the weight of like a double decker bus <laughs> hanging off the turbine blade. And you're like, it can't, like, it has to, it has to remain like a, a, you know, like a fraction of a millimeter away from the wall. You know, like a, you have a turbine system. You've got a whole bunch of turbine blades are spinning around as the gas goes over them, right? In a, uh, if, you, if you're trying to get electricity, this is how uh, electricity is generated. Uh, if it touches the turbine wall, you get an explosion that's equivalent to like a bomb going off. Uh, and if, it, if it's too far away from the turbine wall, the efficiency is just complete garbage. Uh, so it has to like remain perfectly good for basically forever. And you're like, that's really hard to build and it's just as hard to maintain. You need constant maintenance and so on. So whilst a nuclear power plant is very compact in practice, it's very complicated. Uh, and then, you know, beaming from space, well, you need a big receiver area and, you know, like uh, you, there's, there's difficulties with efficiency at every step of the process. Elon Musk said, basically, this is a stupid idea and it needs to die. In the context of Earth, I get where he's coming from. In the context of Mars, I think it still is really nice because for Mars, the situation is different to here. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's, like a, there's, a, there's a battle between these two. I'm not sure which one wins. Perhaps we can look at that another time. Nonetheless, at, at some point, uh, you make everything on site. Probably you do all of Earth's industry on site. Long term, I would expect all of Earth's industry to get replaced by space-based industry. The middle point then is the point in question, where is that? It may be that that middle point is a little bit beyond uh, a, a sort of a five-man team or something like this. So it may be that the first thing you send to Mars, it makes more sense actually to just bring along, well, bring along hydrogen and turn it into methane. If you're doing that, actually what you do is probably you send a uh, you send a previous starship just a fuel starship you know like a, a tanker to the surface of mars filled with hydrogen and then you have it sit there and convert that into methane and water as a byproduct and you don't bother electrolyzing the hydrogen out of the water again because that takes a lot of electricity if you bring twice as much hydrogen and you're happy to just have a whole bunch of water just as a, as a side product that's you know, otherwise available for other things, you might be able to get by with basically no electricity at all. That, that could be a thing that could be done if this is too much of a big deal. There's a good argument for that, actually. And uh, well, I've heard of, well, we have some people at Nexus Aurora who are definitely of that, uh, of that school of thought. Honestly, for me, the numbers don't work out either. I'm, I'm still a little concerned with this. I'm not sure what the right way is to go. 
but certainly you want eventually that uh, that that capacity to manufacture fuel on site as you get more sophisticated. Maybe the right answer is not to use a starship. This is the thing. I, I SpaceX has given me hope. I thought I would spend the rest of my life just sort of, you know, writing about stuff that people could do long after I'm dead. Colonize the solar system, maybe, but my version of that would just be, you know, tw Twitter posts of some kind. You know, we get 140 characters and uh, maybe oil price hikes, and that's our lot in life. <laughs> and then in the far future, people can colonize the stars or something like that. Uh, but then SpaceX gave me hope, and it's like, this might actually hashtag happen in our lifetimes. Maybe, maybe it could, maybe it could really be a thing. Uh, so you know, this is like this is like the second coming of uh, uh, like you know, let's let's not make a <laughs> religious reference, but like uh, Elon, Elon's given all of us hope, and so Starship is just the most spectacular thing ever. But with all that said, uh, Starship need not be the best thing for landing on Mars and launching off again. It's very heavy. As it, as it currently stands, it's like 100 tons or something like that. You do not need that to put people on Mars. So the original Mars Direct plan called for like a, uh, well, Ed, I'll, I'll use Zubrin's, uh, Robert Zubrin's terminology. He was the, basically the main guy behind the Mars Direct plan. So our original plan for getting to Mars, uh, we'll send people to Mars in a tuna can, uh, which is more or less what they were planning to do so a very compact system with very low mass like you should be able to get a reasonable team with some scientific equipment and so on to the surface of mars for like 10 tons or something like that as a total spaceship mass with the people with the equipment and so on uh that's pushing it and that's not going to be a pleasant ride you know uh, stretching your legs is going to be a luxury that you can't afford <laughs> okay for the you know for the people involved but if, you know, uh, astronauts have a very difficult job and they're okay with it, I couldn't do that, I don't think, not, not without some significant training. But it is possible for humans to get to Mars, do something useful, stay there for many hundreds of days, you know, for the, the full duration of a mission before the next launch window, at which point they can come back to Earth. So, you know, it takes two and a half years basically to go off from Earth and uh, go to Mars and then, you know, like be ready to come back again and so on. Well, uh, we expect then that you could do a mission like that with 10 tons, right? Or something on that order rather than 100 tons. And again, uh, neither, neither mass is fixed in stone because Starship's not done yet. So we don't know how much it's going to fully mass out at eventually. Uh, or no one's got something ready to go to Mars. We really don't have solutions to all the problems. One of which is the generation of electricity because a, a megawatt of electricity on average with solar cells is a huge problem to solve and we're not we're not ready for that yet uh on paper you you go through it and you're just like well you know uh, is that is that is that 100 tons of solar cells you need <laughs> no you don't if you got 100 as 100 tons as your answer the answer is no you need a much lower mass than that and maybe there's some clever approach you can do to to get it to work uh but you know like it, it should be possible or at least Everyone, everyone who knew what they were doing, you know, the, the clever, the, um, the practical guys at NASA who are basically the best at this in the entire world, apart from maybe, uh, well, excuse me, in the English speaking world. So the Russians are also spectacularly good with getting stuff to work 
uh, in practice. Like you look at what they've they've been able to achieve, what the Soviet space program was able to achieve with some of its rocket designs and so on. They're just they're just fantastically good at uh, like I I'd say they're probably the closest approach to like a diesel punk thing in real life, like the the Russian space program. And you're just like, hey, dude, have some semiconductors. How are you getting this to work? Like this is crazy, right? Uh, you know, like a, a like I don't know, like a um, you imagine a, the steampunk equivalent would be like a clockwork uh, humanoid robot or something. You're just like, well, maybe you could make a clockwork humanoid robot, but you know, modern like a modern computer chip would make it so much easier for you to do that. How how did you do that in the first place? How did you have the patience to put something like that together? We'd never do it that way. We got we got uh, access to resources that the the steampunk guys don't have. Well, the Roscosmos is kind of similar. Oh, like oh, excuse me. The the Soviet space program was kind of similar to that. Uh, and yet, you know, the pe- so this kind of uh, the, the this kind of engineer, the 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 hyper practical kind that was around in NASA in the nineties and predominated in NASA before, but unfortunately is a is a dying breed. It seems in NASA, who's been replaced with more uh, blue sky thinkers, which is fine. It's just that. Blue Sky, so the the Vasimir project, for example, is not a good way of getting around the solar system. It's not a particularly good idea, and the the kind of thinking that goes into things like this, or research into antimatter and so on, is not what you need to actually do stuff. It might be nice and uh, interesting for people to, you know, in three hundred years' time, where that's a legitimate thing, uh, to look back and say, "Oh, wow, they, you know, they thought of antimatter at the time too. That that's interesting." Uh, you know, it's a nice little note in history. Well, they, you know, like like the Jules Verne thing. Uh, you you don't you don't go to Jules Verne if you actually want to get to the moon. You go to Werner von Braun or someone like this, right? Or Robert Zubrin in the modern day. Okay, so the this group anyway, they thought it was possible with something like ten tons. So I I'm I'm of that school of thought too. We should probably tone down the size of uh, the, the first sorts of rockets that we're sending to Mars because it's just too difficult to make fuel on site. If you're doing that, now you send something ahead with a whole like a big hydrogen tank, you manufacture some methane, and, uh, uh, well, how do you get the oxygen? There you kind of, you need, to, you need to get that out by electrolysis, but you can do that over a much longer period, and you don't need so much. Uh, you store methane then and, and liquid oxygen, leave it going for a couple of years. When it's done, you send some humans over, and they they do their thing. When they need to go, they take up the methane and oxygen that's been slowly generated over long periods. Uh, now, some some aspects of this are exothermic, so maybe you can sort of you if you're very clever, you could imagine cheating, and you're just like, well, technically, reacting the hydrogen to get methane and water releases energy in the process, hydrogen and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So maybe you can cheat and get enough out of that. You could power like a little a little electric generator that then lets you electrolyze some of the oxygen, you know, for it to maybe you can get by. Uh, it won't work for the whole thing, but maybe you know you you don't need you. you uh, what I'm trying to say is you you find some ways where you could shut down the uh, like you don't need so much in the way of solar cells to actually do everything. I don't know, maybe, uh, but in any case, there are ways if if you were willing to do this uh, on a budget. You really could get to Mars with a very small mission, much smaller than what's planned with Starship. And in those cases, probably there, it still makes sense to be sending fuel along. 
Maybe that's cheaper in the long run. Again, none of this is really sorted. No one's exactly sure how to do this just yet. We have some ideas and so on, but it's all uh, a little blue sky, a little bit removed from practical reality, which is a lot harsher <laughs> than it first appears. Uh, so, you know, well, suddenly they made a fusion rocket and then they could go around the whole solar system. Uh, <laughs> it's not a sentence that makes sense by itself, right? So if you, if you think in terms like this, uh, you discover, in, at least for that, you know, just like uh, if you're writing a science fiction and in, in 2050, the fusion rocket is discovered and everyone goes everywhere they want. I've seen that as a premise for, for many science fictions. You can kind of see how, like, maybe that's 5% of the story. And in practice, that's not enough. Even if you have a, like a functioning fusion reactor that powers your rocket or something like this, there, there's hundreds of little bits along the way that are really bad sometimes, like massive problems that are less obvious. They have to be fixed before you can get something like that to work, even if the general idea is right. So in my case, well, it's going to be in our case currently, it's like they discovered that it was possible to take carbon dioxide from Mars' atmosphere, react it with water that you mine from the ground, and make rocket fuel. And then they went to Mars. It's like, well, no, there's, this is much harder than it sounds. And it's still not been solved. So much to say that I, in my case, I don't know. I think maybe like the hundred ton mark is probably a good place to switch, so that you, you know, I mean, after you've after you put some solar cells on the Martian surface, they last relatively well for you know, like they're they're going to be relatively good for long periods. You have to clean the dust off, though. That's the thing. But there are ways by which you could probably do that. So over time, they collect up dust and so on. But at the 100 ton mark, it probably makes more sense to have the infrastructure to make the fuel and oxidizer that you need long term. And that it'll, it'll pay dividends over time so that the next mission you send, you put down some more solar cells and so on, and you keep going. Uh, if you're not making fuel, there's plenty of other things to use electricity for. There's no shortage, actually. That's the other thing. Uh, there's plenty of other things to use water for. You don't, need, uh, you don't need just rocket fuel. If you're going to stay there forever, you need plastics. You need things like steel and so on. You need a means for making use of the ores that you find on the Martian surface to make your technology. Hydrogen is essential for this, uh, so you need to get that from water. You mine your water and then you, you split it, so you need plenty of electricity to make use of it in these sensors, but uh, water is enormously useful for all sorts of stuff. And of course, agriculture. Like, pretty obviously agriculture. You need enormous amounts of water for that. So that even when you're not sending more people to Mars or sending them back home, that's the expensive part. Uh, still, you need enormous amounts of water and enormous amounts of electricity, like all the time. The more electricity and the more water you can give me, uh, the better off I'll be, the quicker I'll be able to set something up on Mars. If I'm so, always picture myself in charge, right? I, I know that I'm not in charge of NASA. Okay, <laughs> so fair enough. Uh, but if I wasn't in charge, these are the two things I would ask for more of. You know, the rest I can figure out on the fly. But if I can get large amounts of these, you know, my, my capacity to, our capacity, excuse me, to, to colonize the Martian surface is directly proportional to how much of these things we can get our hands on, on site, right? It's a long way of saying, yeah, probably a, maybe a starship's <laughs> actually <laughs> a little bit too big. I don't know. People worry about these things, though. Like, it's, it's a legit thing. Uh, engineers worry about this all the time. 
Yeah, one of my my next question was actually going to be something that you touched on there, which is what else you need water for? Because obviously we've mostly talked about fuel, but you mentioned manufacturing, and I know that something like making a car, at least the way we make a car on Earth, takes like a hundred thousand liters of water. So any kind of manufacturing on Mars is obviously, I, I assume, we, there's a sort of water version of like a cheap and dirty approach that you know you can make things that's suboptimal but doesn't use as much water but um yeah i'm imagining by the time you've actually got some serious industry going on mars we're going to need access to huge amounts of water sure i think about this a lot too uh the amount of water that you need to make a car on earth that's a good example actually it really depends on your definitions and what you're counting so for instance, if you're generating electricity and you need electricity to make, you know, so say it's like an aluminium bonnet. To, to give you a quick example, say it's just the, the, the bonnet of the car and it's made of aluminium, you need to get some aluminium, right? You need to get that from electrolysis because aluminium is pretty reactive. There's no practical way to get it out of its ores without electricity. Well, to make the electricity, you need a, a reactor of some kind, maybe, you know, like if it's a gas power station, uh, you, you need not only natural gas, which you burn with air, uh, but you heat up, you heat up water usually uh, to, uh, to, to make a turbine spin. The spinning of the turbine, you can turn into electricity and the electricity goes to your aluminium boundary, right? Well, in, not only do you need water for the turbine bit, but uh, the laws of thermodynamics state that you can't, you can't just uh, have a high temperature and um, have some some mechanism that converts energy that you have available into useful work without also making waste heat. You've got to get rid of the waste heat somehow. In practice, then you have these enormous cooling towers and you, you, you pump a fluid that carries the waste heat through the cooling tower and uh, through evaporation, you have like an enormous, well, you know, like in... Um, in like the Simpsons or something, you've got the big cooling towers, there's this white smoke stuff coming out the top and they're just like, well, it's radioactive. No, it's not. It's just, just steam, basically. And, you know, it's like a cloud, so no problem uh, for anything. But that takes an enormous amount of water. You've got to pump in a huge amount because it's, it's thrown away as you do it. Maybe, do you count the, uh, if you're not doing this and you're just, you're dumping waste heat directly into like a, an enormous river so that the, you know, the temperature goes up by like a, a hundredth of a degree on average or something like this, right? Uh, if you're, if you're clever about it, obviously you want to be careful with this kind of thing. Uh, if you have a pipe that goes through a cold river and the pipe is warm, do you count the water that goes over the pipe? Because then you need an enormous amount of water, right? So, like, uh, generally speaking, then what parts can you not get away with? If we take the, was it 100,000 gallons of water required to make a car? 100,000 liters. 100,000 liters, right, Roger. Okay, so uh, 100 tons to make a car, that's one ton. So you need 100 times the mass of the complicated machine that you're trying to build as water. Uh, if we take that at face value, and we're just like, for things where it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a cheap, so in those cases, you know, if you're just like, well, you know, you, you've got to get electricity for the power station, so uh, you have to get rid of waste heat somehow. Obviously, in cases like that, on Mars that would apply, you'd, use, you'd obviously be using different techniques to get rid of waste heat. With solar cells, you don't need to worry because the surface area is so big that they just dump it into space anyway. Um, with exceptions, so like uh, ignoring solar concentrators and so on, the typical solar cell that you see on the side of a house or something, 
uh, needs no waste heat management at all. It just manages itself, warms up a little bit, dumps all its heat as waste heat rays. Uh, assuming that, but then taking the taking the number as uh, at face value, then so you need a hundred tons of water for one ton complicated machine, and the water's used in um, used in manufacturing and so on. Where do we use water in manufacturing? Uh, where, where it's difficult to get rid of it, or difficult to find some other way around, it would be things like, so uh, on the Martian surface, if you want to cast metal objects, you need green sand, basically. So sand, which has, uh, a, I mean, basically it's just, it's sand which you, you wet a little bit, that you can shape into the form that your, your metal part is going to take. Uh, well, Mars, you'd, you'd You'd wet some, like a, the right combination of sand. If you do it with normal sand, it's it's, it's not going to survive. Uh, that you you put like a little, like a little, say it's like a a, 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 a like a turbine or something like this, or like a I don't know, maybe a cog shape. You you in principle, what you do is you cut a cog shape out of wood or something, or you know, we'd use plastic, surely. Three uh, D print, like a little plastic cog. You stick that in the green sand. You sort of pack the green sand on top of it. And then if it's moistened, then it'll, it'll hold its shape. So you can sort of, uh, you have like two, two little wooden boxes filled with the green sand. You squish them together with the sort of cog shape between them. And then you gently pull them apart. And the impression of the cog is there in the sand. You then take the, the little wood or plastic sort of mold out. You cut some little tubes in along the, uh, along the length of the, the sand. You stick them back together again, and then you've you've got a little hole into which you can pour molten metal. And because it's if the composition of the green sand is right, it can stand up to enormous temperatures. There, uh, you can you can pour stuff in there, and it'll 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 keep its form. And then when you break it down again, you've got the shape that you want. So this is more or less how sand casting works. Well. Uh, you can't really get rid of water in that case. I mean, you need a binder of some kind, but that's going to be a little trickier to to find some way around. Uh, you and you're also probably going to lose it because if you pour like you know molten iron into the in, into your, uh, your 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 sand, your sand casting setup, uh, the water's going to boil off because it's going to get crazy hot, crazy fast. So there, you're kind of stuck. And there are things like that where you just like you need to have large amounts of water available to if you're going to be doing things like this at scale. But then with other things like uh, lubrication, or well, not even, not even really lubrication, but for uh, you know, systems where you, you uh, say you have like drills and things like this, it, like if you're accounting for mining, for instance, uh, on Earth you have like a big mining machine or something, it's got to cut into the, uh, the, the, the ground and you know, get at your minerals and so on. Well, you can't just have large, uh, large metal implements rubbing against each other at very high speeds in the presence of dust and dirt and all, all this kind of stuff. They'll, they'll just get destroyed. So you need to have some kind of fluid that gets in the way and uh, make, makes things move smoothly over each other. In the case of mining equipment, the, because you ha if, if it's just going to get dust and stuff on it, uh, you, can't, you can't then reuse it very easily. You can't just dump out enormous amounts of um, expensive like lubrication oils and so on. You just dump in water. You pour in enormous amounts of water there. And you've got to have something like this usually, like a, a fluid that will 
get in the way and uh, help things move around. So certainly for the, the messier parts of modern industry, like mining and so on, you do need a lot of a fluid of some kind. Water's a good one because it's easily available on the surface of the earth, it has a high density, has an enormously high uh, specific heat capacity. So to heat it up, you've got to put a lot of heat in. Hence, you know, like uh, if you're going to put, put your hands into a fireplace for five seconds, uh, you, you, okay, five is too much. But like for like, you know, like uh, for two seconds or something like that, you pour water over them first. And then you put your hands in and take them out real fast. <laughs> and hopefully the water evaporates off and steals a lot of the heat that's being applied so that you don't get burned. Uh, don't, don't do that at home, please. <laughs> Just an example to illustrate the point, right? Uh, but then you can see how if you're dumping in enormous amounts of water over a, uh, like a piece of drilling equipment, it can get rid of uh, waste heat that otherwise, you know, as the drill works, does its thing, uh, waste heat that would otherwise destroy the equipment or maybe even damage the thing you're drilling through. In some cases, that's a bad thing. Like, you know, if you're drilling through wood or something like this, but you probably wouldn't use water to cool it in that case. But nonetheless, uh, situations like this demand a thing that has those properties, high specific heat capacity if possible, uh, relatively high density, but at least something which will, uh, that's fluid and can trap stuff in it. Uh, well, carbon dioxide stored as a liquid that you gather at night when it's really cold, and it's quite easy to gather carbon dioxide as a, like as a liquid, Liquid carbon dioxide that you then use in the day for your, your mining equipment and so on. I mean, it's not as good, but it's kind of the same. And that's much easier to get because, well, on Mars, there's, there's air all over the place. There's not much of it, but it's carbon dioxide. And so you can just you can sequester that. And if you sequester that and then uh, store it up, and you get very good at doing that, store it up as a liquid. You can imagine every night making sort of maybe hundreds if not thousands of tons of liquid carbon dioxide which in the day gets distributed to mining equipment to well to all kinds of things actually anything where you need or like pneumatic systems and so on uh anything like this it you know it's a it's a, a cheap and simple way of getting easily accessible high pressure gas whenever you want it and so there you could you can imagine completely replacing the role that water would play for such a system on Earth with carbon dioxide. That'd be really nice, right? You can get by quite, quite easily with things like this. Uh, that's, that, that's much more fitting for what's available and what's easy to do on Mars as opposed to what's easy to do on Earth. But yeah, you know, if, if it's things like, say, plastic, you need water for plastic because you need hydrogen. The typical things in plastic are carbon and hydrogen and then other stuff. If I had to describe uh, Plastic, I would say, well, it's long chain hydrocarbons that have hydrogen and carbon, hence hydrocarbon, and sometimes other stuff stuck on it. Well, you can't make a long chain hydrocarbon without the hydro part, right? Without hydrogen, which really means water. There is no replacing water, therefore, uh, for making like a plastic or something on the Martian surface. You've got no choice. Somehow or another, you're going to have to get your hands on some more hydrogen if you're going to make more plastics. But that, that's probably a relatively small part of the total mass of the thing that you're trying to make. Generally speaking, though, this is quite depressing. Like you look at, you look at a car, like you really look at a car. So say maybe watch a, uh, I invite people to watch the tours of the Tesla factory. 
really nice, like uh, looking through the whole thing. Uh, you see that and you're just like, you know, maybe Martian industry could do this. I mean, it can't be that hard, can it? And you look through exactly what's involved with the manufacture of equipment of this kind. You're like, um, oh, <laughs> goodness, that's quite hard. <laughs> that's really quite hard to do. Uh, obviously, if we were doing it, it wouldn't be that complicated, right? So the, the Tesla factory, which is uh, something so, so hard to put together, I, I'm not sure you could really get that working on Mars. Uh, unless unless you're cheating and you're just you import all the factory equipment and as it wears out you just import some more or you import only spare parts or something or maybe you make spare parts on site i if you look at that and you think you know well maybe if you give me give me a um give me a couple of bits of machinery of my own i could make the tesla factory on the martian surface uh i envy your ambitions right well maybe maybe we can't put together something so immensely intricate and complicated ourselves, as Martians, that is. But you could get something that's like a car, but much, much simpler, using something that's like the Tesla factory, but much, much simpler, and still have at the end a satisfactory product. So like a little, uh, well, a big rover that's able to get you around and keep you safe and so on, take you from place to place. You could do that with many fewer moving parts, uh, and much less complicated engineering, if you're happy to accept a few inefficiencies here and there, uh, or you know, uh, you're, you're happy to sort of trade off with things you can afford to trade with. Maybe you know, like you have to, your batteries aren't quite so good because you use sodium ion batteries rather than lithium ion. Because where do you get lithium, right? But sodium's all over the place. But where do you get lithium, for instance, or something like this? Or you're just like, well, okay. I can't use like a, a crazy alloy for my, uh, you know, my structure. So I just have to use like basic steel. Uh, this will decrease the efficiency. But if you're okay with that and you're just like, well, you know, it still works, then maybe you can get a drastic reduction in not just the amount of, we're talking about water here, the amount of water that's required to actually manufacture your, your car equivalent, but also in the amount of manufacturing effort that's required, the machinery that's required. So that you have a much smaller staff being able to still make something that does what a car sort of does, drives from place to place, and lets people go along with it and sustains the people inside as they go. That's totally a doable thing. Although even there, probably you have to ma you, you you're gonna have to import like the really complicated stuff. So you know, the wiring and so on. It's like well, okay, uh, semiconductor chips. So like the um, uh, circuit boards and so on. Uh, good luck making that on site. I mean, you can. It's legitimately possible. Obviously, it's possible to make such things on another planet. Uh, but that's really hard. That's really, really hard. I don't think it's worth it for a very long time. Unless, unless you have a gimmick involved, right? So you're just like, well, we're going to do some aspect of that that's easy to do in space, and then we'll export it back to Earth. That Maybe that does make sense, but that's not the same thing as saying, I'll just make my graphics cards uh, with a factory, a, a little extra factory I have on Mars. Uh, you ain't going to be making graphics cards better than NVIDIA does uh, for the next 100 years, maybe you know, probably like 200 years, right, <laughs> on Mars. Nonetheless, you know, uh, if, I still think basically if you, if you know what you're doing and you have a, a, a Martian mindset, you could probably reduce 
the amounts of water in particular, but in all sorts of other resources like effort, for instance, uh, you know, man hours, you can reduce the requirements of these things drastically if you're working on the surface of Mars or you know, uh, space in general. If you, if you have the sort of the, the pragmatism that comes along with living in harsh environments and just you know, uh, replacing, say, you know, like, uh, replacing a calculator with a slide rule, because slide rules work, and a lot of the time you don't need the answer to 20 decimal places. Uh, replacing a calculator with a slide rule is a totally doable thing, and you'll have a much easier time making a slide rule than a calculator on the Martian surface, right? Replacing a mobile phone with a calculator is more realistic, and that's a totally doable thing as well, right? So, or, or well, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps it's more like importing a, uh, a tablet type thing or a mobile phone type thing, and then just using, using software that you also import to solve most of your computational problems and so on. That's probably the, the, uh, the pragmatic way out of it, actually. But you, hopefully you get where I'm coming from. So that, you know, like uh, concerns like this, whilst they are a big deal, if you got the pragmatism, maybe you can just make it work with much fewer resources than you originally thought you'd need. Hence, I'm still waiting for someone to make a, uh, a TV series where, you know, like they, they put a couple of smart people on a desert island and they're just like, you have 100 days to make a steam engine or something like that, you know, get to work. <laughs> I'm not sure you could actually, it's too difficult uh, making a steam engine on a desert island. There's, there's too much that has to go into that uh, in 100 days at least, you know. A hundred years, certainly, but not a hundred days. If there's only like five of you, probably you need thousands of people, really. There's, there's too much that's going on. But, you know, something like a, a functioning sailboat or something like that, which is not easy. I could imagine something like that working. No one has done this satisfactorily, you know, excluding the, um, the, the Richard Hammond uh, thing. I don't know. That, I'm sorry. They, they tried really hard, but the, that show didn't quite... Have you seen that? It's popped up in my Amazon feed, but I haven't clicked on it. The picture really puts me off for some reason. Yes, exactly right. I, I watched it all the way through uh, because the premise is just perfect for me. It's incredible. Uh, but the, the show, unfortunately, like, it fell short in a few senses. I think they made, they made a few decisions. It just didn't, it didn't quite work out. Uh, a plus for trying, though. A plus for effort. They, someone else should give this a try, and then maybe sort of uh, like they they cheat sometimes. They they make it sort of jokey, like a Top Gear thing. They give them power tools occasionally, or something like this. I'm like, well, that's not really starting from scratch, is it? <laughs> I don't know. But and and you know, like they, they um, well, never mind, right? But you can imagine someone else giving this a try and it really working out, being really cool. The closest uh, approximation to that, by the way, if like me, you really want a show like this and you're annoyed that it doesn't exist. It kind of does with a show called Connections with James Burke. That's probably the closest approach that's ever existed and one of the best documentary series ever made, in my opinion, right? Look that up. Connections, James Burke. If you're taking anything away from the podcast, Connections, James Burke will change your life. Fantastic series, right? Uh, that's kind of like this. It's very technical as well, but in a, in a very approachable way. Very cool. Uh, I think it's, was that from the 80s or something? It's... It, it's aged spectacular it's for fine wine I think it only gets better as time goes on right uh, but that's not quite the same but it's the closest approach I've ever seen that actually works right but nonetheless uh, we're attempting to do something like that 
you know, stranded on the desert island, can you make a can you make a technology or something? Or in his case, it's more like historically speaking, what is the origin of this thing that we take for granted every day? And you know, tracing it back through history, how did we get that? That's the premise for Connections, the documentary series. Well, we're we're attempting to do the real life version of something just like that, or along those lines, with making a, a civilization on another planet. And we'll discover that, uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta rethink the way you do things if you're gonna get ahead, right? <laughs> if you if you're gonna be able to do this at all. But I again, unfortunately, this is not this is not for us right now. This we're decades away from this, I think, still, unfortunately. But nonetheless, that is coming. And yes, uh, big problem. How do you replace the water in the factories? But I, I, I still think it's a doable thing, though I don't have the answer in every case for every part of the, the, the factory process. Now, this is the Nexus Aurora podcast, but how do you actually interact with Nexus Aurora if you're not already a member? I hear some of you new people asking. Well, fear not. It's actually really easy. We have a website. If you look up nexusaurora.org, all the links are there to our presence on Twitter, to our thriving Discord community. It's really never been quite so easy to get in contact with people who are interested in this kind of thing as it is right now. That's nexusaurora.org. Have you played Subnautica? I must have asked you this before, actually. I haven't. A few people recommended it to me, but uh, I didn't have a good enough computer to run it off of for a long time, but now I do. <laughs> ah, yeah, good point. Um, it's killed my computer sometimes. Like, I think I was something wrong with my power supply, so I'll be playing a game like this and it shut well. I play less and less games these days, but when I remember you know, a couple of years back, just playing, playing a video game and it just shut down. But uh, nonetheless, Subnautica is a really good game. I don't know about the expansion. It's good in some ways and bad in others. Uh, it can't really hold up to the original, but that's, that's so common, right? I mean, uh, apart from The Empire Strikes Back, when is the sequel better than the original, right? <laughs> I don't know, right? But yeah, uh, Subnautica is a spectacular game. And uh, they, the, the general premise is you land on an alien world, right? Not Mars, but uh, actually very different to Mars. Uh, you, you land on an alien world, and the entire thing is covered by oceans. And you, you, you land on, you have like a little life raft that floats on, on the surface. And uh, you have to, we have to survive. You have to go out exploring. And you dive down deep into the ocean and you discover that it's full of life. Some of which is quite hostile. Some of which is quite terrifying. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's like there's, there's, um, there's an entire ecosystem which you have to become a part of over time. Mars maybe has that, maybe to one extent. I don't think you have like hundred foot long monsters that try and like consume your soul or something like this if you go down the you know the wrong part of the uh, the brine lake. But Mars probably does have brine lakes and things like this. The under huge underwater uh, underwater domains as yet unexplored, un unvisited by humanity. Which have probably just been undisturbed for well eons, like uh, you know, millions of years at the very least, that have just sat there, uh, and that have had that you know, if you if you find brine lakes in the Tharsis region, for instance, uh, it's very reasonable to assume that volcanic activity has given them access to exotic chemicals which could be metabolized by living things, so that. 
we really might come to a situation where you know we we've uh, we we've we've done those of scouting with uh you know like ground penetrating radar or else with sonar like um or you know using you make a, a small explosion and it makes a shockwave propagate through the ground and you watch the reflections to see where there are big changes in density so for instance going from rock to water that will give some reflections you and you you do a lot of experimentation like this we might get to a point where we've discovered brine lakes and things like that and we're just like well we got we got to go down there <laughs> and then you imagine sending sending down a little probe or something like that and wandering through these things there might be all sorts to discover though like there might be a, a, a crazy rich underwater habitat possibly filled with life maybe even complex life i don't hold out hope for that but uh, it, it's possible at least like this isn't this isn't crazy sci-fi stuff like this isn't warp drive you really might be able to find a uh, 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 an enormous uh, underground lake that's very salty water that's got enough available energy nearby got a stable enough environment for long enough periods for life to actually be there it's probably like you know if it's taking the case of lava tubes for instance we assume because the gravity is lower and the uh, the viscosity of lava is quite quite low in general with the you know like with so in the Tharsis region, the main volcanoes on Mars, they're like shield volcanoes. Uh, so you only get that if the, you, your, uh, your lava is basaltic, like the Hawaiian uh, shield volcanoes. So it's quite runny. We expect then the combination of these things and other factors to have created very large lava tubes. So if, you, know, you imagine maybe a, an old lava tube gets then filled up with water and, uh, over long periods of time. Like, I don't know, maybe it gets sealed off or something like this, right? You could imagine really significantly large underwater environments deep, deep in the crust of Mars, which people could actually swim through, which you could wander around and explore. So I have uh, what's prompted this. <laughs> it, you, I, you can't see, obviously, it's a podcast, but in, my, uh, uh, in, in the, the, the room recording in right now, I have a, a calendar set up. But it's got uh, it's a, it's an it's an aquatic calendar, so it's got pictures from different um, every month. It's like a, di a picture of, of different sea creatures and so on from uh, different parts of the ocean. Uh, this month's one, <laughs> June, by the way, uh, has a, 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 a hammerhead shark on it. It's it's this it's it's a monstrous thing, hideous thing, but it's, it's beautiful at the same time, right? I, <laughs> I keep you know. I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's likely you have enough available uh, uh, chemical resources and so on, uh, because you know if it's just being fed by uh, black smokers or something like this. So uh, volcanic uh, artifacts that just throw up exotic chemicals, and then you have. You can imagine like like little bacterial, uh, well, bacteria-sized entities. Bacteria. Hey, you know if it's evolved completely separately from Earth. Probably not, but like you know, small-celled organisms of some kind. Cells do make sense, but uh, is, we, you'd expect them to be radically different to anything, right? Anything we've ever seen before, uh, if they did evolve separately. You can imagine such things feeding off of the uh, the black smoke of chemicals and so on. But like getting enough resources together to support an ecosystem that has giant, monstrous-looking predatory entities 
is probably a bit much to ask for. Nonetheless, you know, uh, small creatures of one kind or another, multicellular organisms may well not be out of the question. So, uh, as a little side note, <laughs> talking about water on Mars, that, that might be a legit thing. Certainly there are very large freshwater lakes uh, that we, we have reason to suspect exist underneath the, uh, the poles. Uh, again, not confirmed, but there's strong evidence to suggest that they are real. So that there are larger bodies of water available in, in some places on Mars, on deep, deep underground, you know, many kilometers underneath the ice caps. Uh, we, we're unlikely to have easily available chemistry there to power things up. But, you know, uh, at least there's water sufficient for life, large amounts of life to exist there, if not uh, an easy energy source. If that gets solved somehow, maybe even there you might be able to find stuff like this, right? That that would be very exciting. And again, whilst that's overly optimistic, I think even finding microbial life is going to be uh, that is going to be a bit hit or miss. I'm not sure even Mars has that. Nonetheless, it's not it's not absurd to consider things like this having actually existed. Well, certainly fossils of things like this being around aquatic things. So either in the, the, uh, the, the enormous, the, uh, in the northern hemisphere of Mars, there's what looks like, according to some people, an impact basin that basically spans maybe a third of the entire planet. It's not confirmed that that's an impact basin. But if it is, it's the biggest impact basin in the solar system by far. Like uh, there's a north-south dichotomy on Mars, where the northern regions have very different, uh, like very different properties, very different appearance to the southern regions. They don't even get as much dust, really. They, they they tend not to be so dusty. You get big plains and things like that. And people are like, why is that exactly? Uh, it it could well be that there was an impact in Mars's history involving an object, maybe with I, I've seen uh, people say estimate something like two percent the mass of Mars, a, a colossal impact. That sort of uh, smashed the top half of the planet, and uh, you know there, there would then have been for long periods. Uh, if, if this is very ancient in Mars's history, it's possible then over long periods that you would have had large amounts of water there forming a giant ocean on that half of the uh, on the half of the planet. It's possible, but certainly for Hellas Planitia, uh, which is a, a region also formed by an impact, that's I think that's. Um, that might be like the third largest impact confirmed impact crater as you know we know it's an impact crater in like in the entire solar system mars has got these kinds of things going mars doesn't mess around right uh, it's got these things going for it uh that that has that has almost uh, certainly had water in it in the past at some point mars has had water all over the place in the past we we have evidence for this but uh these these kinds of things must have had huge oceans and so if you had um if you had aquatic life at some point in mars's past and multicellular life it's not unreasonable to go looking for it in the sediments at the bottom of these extinct uh lakes and oceans many of which we we can see from orbit uh you know we can trace out where they would have been despite well i mean the easiest way is to look for a, a big hole in the ground you're like well i mean if that's a really old big hole in the ground then 
go back far enough, even we have evidence for water there on Mars 650 million years ago, uh, you might well have had vast amounts of water on the surface. And hence, with light, with water, with access to organic chemicals and things like this, which are blatantly going to be there as well in some form or another, you really do have the stuff for life. And so you might, if you looked carefully, find evidence of, you know, like fossils of, of really impressive things if they existed. And, you know, this, this remains to be seen. I have to add that in uh, because that's legit and it's crazy. You'd think this is sci-fi, but we have every reason to believe that that sort of thing's possible because it's happened on Earth. Dinosaur fossils are real. The dinosaurs were a real thing. And many other sorts of creatures before and since that are just extraordinary. They have existed. And they were a legit thing. And they were a legit thing in, uh, in Earth's case. And for Earth, well, we have gravity, like large amounts of gravity here. Uh, three times as much gravity as Mars does. About and it's a little bit less than three times as much gravity as Mars does. Mars has three apes of our gravity. It's very close to that. Well, uh, <laughs> if you got lower gravity, then on the surface outside of water. So in water, it doesn't. The rules are a little different. But on, on the surface, perhaps you could sustain even really big things, impressive creatures, and so on. So that it, just to point out, it's it's not so absurd as it sounds. The, the most absurd sounding thing about Arrakis, you know, in, in the Dune universe with the, the Fremen who have to uh, be careful with where they get their water and so on, are the giant sandworms, which also live on Arrakis that are like hundreds of meters long. Now, sandworms are not a clever, like, I don't think sandworms can actually legitimately exist because it is swimming through sand is really quite difficult. There's all sorts of problems that come along with that. But giant monster type things living at some point in Mars's past cannot be ruled out until we've really checked. You've got to check a lot, right? You've got to do a lot of work before you conclude that such things never existed. So we might actually find that in the future, which is extraordinary. So you play something like Subnautica and you're just like, maybe this isn't actually so silly. Actually, Subnautica is a pretty reasonable ex um, exploration of what the underwater world is like, minus the you know, 100 foot monsters and so on. Uh, outside of that, it's actually it's not that bad as a, a a model for the spirit, at least, of what what the aquatic world on Earth is like. By the way, so highly recommended. But sorry, I, that that point aside, then. Oh well, even more aside, have you seen um, the Outer Limits episode called Sand Kings? It's about no. Martian insects. So it's about. Um, a soil sample is brought back from Mars, and I think it's they find tiny insect eggs in it, and um, they're hatched on Earth in this aquarium or terrarium type thing. And you know, spoilers, it goes badly for everybody. Um, but it was written by George R. R. Martin, and it's very good. So, just recommendation for the well, it was very good in the '90s. Maybe it doesn't hold up very well, but just recommendation for people there. If you like that kind of thing, go and uh, go and dig out the outer limits of the Sand Kings. Roger that. Cool. I like that. Love that premise. So you, you described this show before as being kind of like um, setting up a, a desert island on Mars type colony, which is actually something we talked about on a, on a previous episode. So with that in mind, and with you being the person who's in charge of this colony, we've now solved the water problem, totally 100% water sorted. What do we need to do next? So 
say we we we're not doing this tuna can mission anymore. We're talking about something that is a little bit more like a colony. We've got moisture farms collecting water, turning it into fuel. They can use that for for creating an atmosphere. There's water there for a bit of manufacturing and so on. But we still don't really have what we need to bring a large number of people to Mars. So what do you want to do next on your colony? Do you want to start building habitats? Do we need farms? Um, Is it something like ore processing? Is it something completely different? Well, electricity, of course. (laughs) You need to get the electricity there. Yeah, so I think we've kind of established that we would need that to do the moisture farming in the first place. So let's assume that we have like a base level of electricity from solar power. Base electricity from solar power, base collection of water so you got enough water for to be sufficient for reasonable stuff. Uh, but you know, presuming that you're not uh, like you you have a mind for water efficiency and electricity efficiency. Electricity is always going to be expensive, at least well, medium to but early to medium term electricity is expensive. What next do you do? What you do next, I think, is make plastic. You make plastics. You get good at making plastics. Good quality plastics. Uh, because with good quality plastics, you get the magic thing, uh, which seems so simple at first sight, which is necessary for real colonization of Mars, which is a transparent surface that holds air in. So glass also can be a transparent surface that holds air in, but it's really difficult to make, and it's quite fragile and not particularly strong. And unless unless you're going overboard and you're making you know like sapphire glass or something, uh, good luck to you. That's a very nice substance, but it's also very expensive, really hard to get. You know, on site, where you could make sapphire glass, that'd be really cool actually. But but we can't. You know, uh, practically at scale. In which case, you're stuck with plastic. If you want to make farms, which is the next thing along, to get to the uh, get to the point where you can start really getting ahead with things, you need plastics in order to do it. The thing is, in order to get plastics uh, whose, whose, primary, uh, whose primary ingredients are carbon and hydrogen and, and other stuff I said previously, so other stuff in this case probably means oxygen, nitrogen, uh, sulfur, maybe polyphenylene sulfide. There are some circumstances where that makes sense. Maybe it's a sulfur again. Uh, all these things are easily acquired on the Martian surface. We know that they're there, and they're in large quantities, and they're in easily accessible forms, right? I hopefully, if if the water, you know, if our assumptions about the water hold up, uh, getting those together and turning them into plastic requires basically an industry of its own. So that the the industry that can make your plastic should be a good prototype for other kinds of industries. And it's the, it's the real prize. So if you can get a, a factory that produces large amounts of industrially useful plastic for making habitats where you grow your plants, which is the next real thing to do, then you're, uh, that, that should be the next step along. If you discover that the difficulties involved with doing this are such that it's just not economical to bring the equipment required to do this from Earth, and you have to make the equipment on site, so a plastics factory, what's that going to require? Uh, all sorts of things. You know, you need containers for different fluids. Uh, you know, uh, you need to be able to heat them and uh, treat them with different chemicals and so on at various stages of the process, depending on what kind of plastic you're making and for what purpose. Uh, you need, you need 
actually you need you need quite sophisticated equipment to sort of extrude plastics and get them in the shapes and at the thicknesses that are required to make the sorts of structures that we'd like to make. So habitats where you can put plants in, that's the real prize. Uh, if you discover that the equipment required for this is just too heavy, you can't take it all from Earth, you still take the really complicated bits from Earth, but then the question is whether or not you, you build up some stuff on site. If you need to build up some stuff on site and you're just like, well, it's just not going to work. You know, this is going to, you're talking about like 200 tons here. There's not much point bringing all of that from Earth. It's going to be too expensive. Then instead of plastics, what you should do is you should go straight for steel and uh, make, make steel instead on site and just do casting and so on. The thing is, steel is easier to make than plastics in some senses if you can get the ores. If you get the correct ores for the steel so you can get good, good quality iron ore, then you can make steel and it's much easier. Uh, in principle, than making plastics. Plastics are a little bit more unforgiving, and they require a lot more electricity because you've got to get hydrogen on site. You have to electrolyze some water and so on. But plastics are uh, pl plastics have more utility. They're easier to make use of than steel. Steel is a wonder material, and it's going to be at the cornerstone of basically everything we do on Mars. But plastics are the things which. Uh, which fulfill the needs that we have most, that are most extreme, most immediate, when we actually try and set up a colony. So you need to have your plastics coming in. Where would we go then to do that? Well, I, I, yeah, again, it, it's, it's a fork, and I don't know which way you go. Either you can bring in enough equipment to actually make at scale the plastics that you need to make your habitats. Uh, I've talked previously, actually, about what kind of plastics you would want to have and uh, how you'd want to put them together, a little bit about how you want to put them together and so on. Uh, but ethylene vinyl alcohol, by the way, is a really good one. Uh, if you want to know about that kind of thing, if you're interested, look up ethylene vinyl alcohol. doesn't get much attention on Earth, but I think it's quite nice. Uh, nonetheless, if you find that you can, your, the factory equipment required to make that stuff is something you can just bring from Earth, and it actually works out, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of parts that have to all work together in an alien environment continuously for long periods of time. So I have no idea whether you can do that or not, right? If that's practical, rather, you can, obviously, because we have factories that do it on Earth, and there's no reason, like, the laws of physics are just the same on the Martian surface. The conditions of operation are not that different anyway. Uh, whether it's practical or not remains to be seen. If it is practical, you bring those along and you start making plastics with the material that you have on site because then you don't have to mine anything. All you have to do is just get more water. Water and the stuff that's floating around in the Martian atmosphere is sufficient to make good quality plastics. Those are the only feedstocks you need. Whereas if you want to make alloys, you want to make steel and so on, you've got to drive out and mine the, uh, mine the right minerals that you can then process into those alloys so that they're actually more difficult in that respect. Driving around in a rover, doing some digging, and collecting stuff up and then bringing it back to a factory is something which sounds a lot easier to do than have a sophisticated piece of equipment that runs on a lot of electricity. But I'm guessing it's, it's the kind of thing that's going to be harder to do in practice. Whereas having a static thing that just sucks up uh, Martian atmosphere and uh, takes in Martian water that we collected through means that we described earlier is not so bad. Even though in practice, maybe on Earth, you'd think that digging the stuff up and moving it around would be the uh, the easier thing. I think on Mars, it's reversed. 
then you go with the plastics uh, first. But if you have no choice and you're just like, well, this is just gonna this is gonna be too expensive. This, we're we're not gonna be able to put all this stuff together because we need too many moving parts. You know, we need too much apparatus set up. Or, or you're just like, well, to make to make our plastics thing, basically we need a large enclosed habitat anyway, and we don't care if the light can get in. Then what you should do is go straight for steel, and you make the big enclosed habitat with, uh, and you you pressurize that environment. You can then have a lot of people working inside, away from dust and things like this, and working with all the the equipment. You know, like uh, if you've seen sort of extrusion of plastics, like a uh, a, a blown blown extrusion of plastics and things like this to make plastic films. That's quite hard to do, right? It's quite a complicated thing. You need people on site to fiddle around with uh, complicated bits of machinery and so on. It's much easier to do that in a pressurized environment. But then you have to build a big pressurized environment on the Martian surface. That's the trick, right? If If you discover that it's just not practical to get the stuff set up needed to make your plastic, then you should go for steel and work with steel instead. And steel should be the next step. But if you can get away with it, then it would be plastic. Plastic's the prize. Steel is just a way of getting to it. Basically, I would say, is the next step along. So this has been a very technical episode. We're usually quite technical with this podcast, but quite clearly, even if we know how to make a colony on another planet, we're not going to get one unless we also deal with more esoteric problems, less obvious ones. Next week, I'm going to talk about aesthetics. I'm going to try to convince my co-host Chris, and hopefully by extension you, dear listener, that the particular fashions in technology, and in particular in science fiction, that hold today, a period that I think is most fittingly called Apple Punk, after Apple products. We're in the Apple Punk era, not the cyberpunk, by the way, is by itself not sufficient to build a new civilization with, and we'll need to make something entirely new if we want to make it work. For all this and more, tune in next week.